0: Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode the amazingly subversive Terrell Givens. Now, who is Terrell Givens? Most of my audience will already be familiar with Terrell Givens. For those of you who happen to not be or may not have heard of him or his writings, let me give him a brief introduction. And to do this, I will just go to his own web page and read you the first paragraph. Terrell L. Givens was born in upstate New York, raised in the American Southwest, yada, 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 as professor of literature and religion, and the Jabez A. Bostwick professor of English. At the University of Richmond, he taught courses in Romanticism, 19th century cultural studies, and the Bible and literature. Currently, he is a Neil L. Maxwell Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University. He has published in Literary Theory, British and European Romanticism, Mormon Studies, and Intellectual History. The New York Times has praised him for his provocative writing, and Harper's has called him Fair-Minded, Scholarly and unbiased. It goes on here with a number of other paragraphs and a number of his other writings. He has written a number of books in the last 20 years or so related to Mormonism. I've read a number of those books. I remember reading his book about the Book of Mormon. It was called By the Hand of Mormon, the American scripture that launched a new world religion. That was published back in 2003. I also read his book called People of Paradox, A History of Mormon Culture from 2007, and The God Who Weeps, which was published by Deseret in 2012. I also read his book titled The Crucible of Doubt. Terrell Givens has frequently been called a Neo- Apologist. A neo-apologist is a different kind of animal from the traditional apologist. Traditional apologists fall more in the camp of Daniel Peterson, Stephen Smoot, and my good friend Kwaku L. What traditional apologists do is they argue for the truth of Mormonism at all costs. They are not above keeping information and knowledge from you if it will hurt their cause. In fact, they hope you will not be aware. Of the information that hurts their cause and there's no way in hell that they're going to tell you about it voluntarily. Neo-apologists, however, such as Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason and others, will actually tell you the negative information and frequently they will simply set that negative information out there without much effort on their part to make it harmonize with the dominant narrative of Mormonism. In fact, neo-apologists have a different version of Mormonism from the dominant narrative, which is taught by the current leadership of the church. The Mormonism of neo-apologists, such as Terrell Givens, tends to be much more nuanced, complicated, accepting of the negative information and attempting to incorporate that negative information into their worldview of Mormonism, which necessarily leads them away from the dominant narrative. Nevertheless, they present as being faithful members in the LDS Church anyway. The reason I'm speaking tonight about Terrell Givens is because of his most recent book that was published on The Pearl of Great Price. I have that book with me right here tonight. It is titled The Pearl of Greatest Price. That's the title, The Pearl of Greatest Price, and subtitled Mormonism's Most Controversial Scripture. It is authored by Terrell L. Givens with... Brian M. Hauglid. My expectation and understanding from the text is that Terrell Givens is responsible for the authorship of the entire book, but he received substantial help and aid from Brian Hauglid, probably in the chapter dealing with the book of Abraham. A friend of mine suggested strongly, that I get this book, that I read through it, and that possibly I might do a podcast on the contents. Well, I was hesitant about that, but I went ahead and I got the book at the urging of my friend, and I began sitting down with it a week or so ago and reading this book. The book is separated into several sections relating to the different entries in The Pearl of Great Price. There is an introduction in this book which deals with how The Pearl of Great Price came to be assembled, edited, put together, And accepted as scripture in the LDS Church. In fact, accepted as a new book of scripture or standard work in the LDS Church back in 1880. It also talks about how it was originally collected by Franklin D. Richards in England and published in 1851 with the idea in mind that this would give additional reading material to the many English people who were converting to the LDS Church. The two main sections of the book have to do with the first chapter which is called the Joseph Smith Translation, the second chapter called the Book of Abraham. Now the first chapter takes about 100 pages. The second chapter on the Book of Abraham takes about another 100 pages and Then it goes on into smaller chapters relating to the Joseph Smith history extracts contained in the Pearl of Great Price, and finally the Articles of Faith contained in the Pearl of Great Price. I have not read past the introduction and the first chapter, and the reason I have not is because what I have encountered in the first chapter convinced me that really I should do a podcast on this subject, and there was plenty of material in the first chapter alone to more than fill out one podcast. Let me start by mentioning why it is that Terrell Givens calls the Pearl of Great Price the Pearl of Greatest Price. It is his thesis that the most important and profound doctrines in Mormonism are contained in their inception in the Pearl of Great Price in its various books. He lays out this thesis in page 3 and four of his book. Let me read to you a couple of excerpts so you can understand what it is that his thesis is from his own words. He writes on page three regarding the Pearl of Great Price, it is the least studied, written about, understood, and appreciated book in the LDS canon. But it outweighs, here's his thesis, but it outweighs in theological consequence and influence all the rest. So that's from page three. Going over here to page 4, he states this, It is in the pages of the Pearl of Great Price that we find the essential foundations of a radically new religious tradition. Here, Old Testament narratives are totally recast as human ascent rather than fall. A new covenant theology is propounded that reaches back to human premortality. God's nature is redefined in ways diametrically opposed to Christian creedal formulations. Trinitarianism is undone. The possibilities of human theosis are first limbed, and the template of the Zion society Smith was called to build is first laid out. And of course, when he says Smith, he's referring to Joseph Smith. He concludes with the following words, Mormonism, in other words, is absolutely inconceivable. Apart from this collection of scriptural texts that provided the faith's theological core from the beginning, but only received canonical recognition in 1880. At the present moment, controversies regarding multiple accounts of Smith's first vision, as well as the origins of the text of the Book of Abraham, have brought unprecedented attention to this hitherto largely neglected work. The consequence is that the Pearl of Great Price represents at one and the same time the greatest vulnerabilities and the greatest strengths of the Church of Jesus Christ. So this is his thesis regarding the Pearl of Great Price, that at one and the same time, it contains the most problems related to the LDS Church, but he also believes it contains the greatest strengths of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, when he talks about the strengths, he's talking about the theological strengths, the doctrinal strengths, the philosophical strengths in his mind. And I will say at the outset that Terrell Givens is a very smart fellow. He's very erudite. He is widely read. He knows a lot of stuff. And he applies his knowledge, his intellect, his understanding in order to describe why it is that he believes the Pearl of Great Price contains the most important doctrines in Mormonism. And that is what the rest of his book is about. What he does at the same time, however, is he incidentally brings up many of the weaknesses of Mormonism. And once again, I'm only going to be talking about Chapter 1 tonight. That is all I've gone through. Terrell Givens has recently decided to dip his toe into Book of Abraham apologetics, and I expect he will do more of that in the chapter devoted to the Book of Abraham. He has already given a couple of interviews regarding his feelings about the Book of Abraham, and it appears that his resolution of the problems with the Book of Abraham is simply going to be some warmed-over catalyst theory, but I have not investigated it thoroughly enough in order to give a well-rounded commentary on that, so I will leave that part alone for the present. All I can say is that you have to be careful when you dip your toe into Book of Abraham apologetics because there are crocodiles in those waters, and one of those crocodiles' name is Sobek, and if you're not careful, he's gonna bite your leg clean off. It has happened to others before Terrell Givens, and I hope that he will not be numbered among the casualties. Let me give you an example of what I mean by his talking about the philosophical issues related to Mormonism in the Pearl of Great Price, which at the same time raise issues regarding the historicity of Mormonism, but he does not address the problems he raises. He simply rhapsodizes regarding how wonderful the philosophical and theological doctrines are. Here's an example of this. You will recall that when I read from his thesis, he talks about here Old Testament narratives are totally recast as human ascent rather than fall. That's the fall of Adam being a good thing rather than a bad thing. He goes on to say, a new covenant theology is propounded that reaches back to human pre-mortality. Now, what he means there is the fact that knowledge of Jesus Christ and his atonement does not begin with Jesus Christ in the New Testament as the rest of Christianity believes because they only have the Bible. And the Old Testament does not really talk a whole lot about Jesus Christ and does not evince a lot of knowledge about Jesus Christ on the part of the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures. But in the Pearl of Great Price... We have knowledge of Christ going back to Moses in the book of Moses, and we also have it going back to premortality in the book of Abraham. So that's what he means when he says a new covenant theology is propounded that reaches back to human premortality. Now, Professor Givens thinks this is a wonderful thing, theologically speaking, but he doesn't address the issues it raises historically. As I say, the issue it raises historically is why is it that in Joseph Smith's scriptures, all of a sudden, Jesus Christ, the knowledge of his atonement, his sacrifice, his earthly ministry, even in minutest detail, is stretched back to Moses, stretched back to Adam even, and then stretched back to pre-mortality if we go to chapter 3 of the book of Abraham. That seems to be anachronistic in the nth degree. But Terrell Givens doesn't address the anachronistic nature of it. Instead, he just talks about the theological significance. And this is why I refer to Terrell Givens as subversive. He raises issues and troubling criticisms and problems related to Mormonism, but he never addresses them. Now, I want to give him credit because he is a neo-apologist. A real apologist or a traditional apologist would never bring up this subject in the first place. Or if they did, they would rush... To explain why it is that this is not really a problem for Mormonism. But Professor Givens instead raises the issue but never addresses it. And this is not the only time he raises such an issue. In fact, there are many times just in this first chapter alone where Terrell Givens notes that there are many sources that Joseph Smith apparently depended on or could have depended on or definitely, according to Terrell Givens, depended on in producing his Joseph Smith translation. Remember that's the title of chapter 1 of this book, the Joseph Smith translation. Now the idea that Joseph Smith had sources that he depended on and relied upon and borrowed from in creating scripture contained in the Pearl of Great Price and in his Joseph Smith translation is troubling for a lot of people. But Terrell Givens has no compunction and I give him credit for this for being honest about bringing up these sources of correspondence and probable borrowings by Joseph Smith but he never addresses the issue in terms of an apologetic nature. He never gives a defense for it. He simply brings up the correspondences he notes them in passing, and then he moves on with the rest of his book. The reason that I've got more than enough material for a podcast here is because in Chapter 1 alone, I noted 11 such instances of Terrell Givens doing precisely this sort of a thing. Now the first time I read through chapter one I wasn't able to pick up on all of these because frankly Terrell Givens being a very smart professorial kind of guy uses extremely complicated language to express his ideas. At least it's complicated to me and I had to go back and really pay attention and reread chapter one with pen in hand to mark passages to make notes in the margin and to identify each of these separate places where he gives dependencies that Joseph Smith would have relied on in producing this scripture. So the first of these has to do with the Adam Clark commentary. Now this is something that is becoming more and more widely known, but still certainly not widely enough. The fact is, is that a paper published by a BYU professor and a research assistant is going to be published here in the next few months relating to the fact that Joseph Smith had in his possession a copy of Adam Clark's Bible Commentary, which was an extremely erudite work for the time, and that Joseph Smith borrowed heavily from Adam Clark's Bible Commentary in creating his Joseph Smith translation. This is on page 30 of the book. Here's what Terrell Givens says there. Clearly he, Joseph Smith, considered that his work, that's the Joseph Smith translation, clearly he considered that his work was, in this regard, scriptural production. Not merely emendation. So he admits that Joseph Smith considered his Joseph Smith translation to be a scriptural production. But at the same time, and once again, now I'm quoting from Terrell Givens, at the same time, as he would manifest in his decision to study Hebrew, even as he applied his prophetic gifts to grappling with Egyptian papyri, he felt that the tools of the scholar and the seer were complementary. So here he's going to basically, he is going to sort of be a little bit apologetic here in a vague way, but he's going to say the tools of the scholar, i.e. Adam Clark's scholarly tools, and the seer, i.e. his prophetic gifts, were complementary. And so, as scholars have noted, he was not averse to employing learned commentaries, even as he invoked a prophet's authority and prerogative to edit holy Writ. He goes on, Thomas Wayment, that's the professor at BYU, and Haley Wilson, that's his research assistant, Thomas Wayman and Haley Wilson have found in Smith's translation 200 to 300 examples of clear influence from Adam Clark's commentary in Clark's Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments. That's his Bible commentary. And these reflect how Smith used academic sources while simultaneously melding his own prophetic inspiration into the resulting text. And there he's quoting from the paper itself. So it is not exactly clear how it is that Terrell Givens is saying that Joseph Smith is using prophetic gifts in producing scripture in the Joseph Smith translation when at the same time he's borrowing 200 to 300 times. Clear examples from Adam Clark's Bible commentary, lesser minds would call that plagiarism, but from a faithful, nuanced, neo-apologetic point of view. This has to somehow be the product of prophetic inspiration. Borrowing the ideas from somebody else, from a recognized scholar named Adam Clark, and using 200 to 300 examples of commentary he makes on the Bible, and inserting it in Joseph Smith's own translation of the Bible, this somehow becomes a manifestation of his prophetic authority and inspiration. You can see how this mention of Adam Clark's Bible commentary, while true, and it should be in this book, and I give credit once again to Terrell Givens for including it in the book. He puts it in the book, but his excuse for it really is kind of vague, fuzzy, and not entirely convincing. To some minds, it might sound like Joseph Smith got his hand caught in the cookie jar when it came to the Joseph Smith translation, but we're still gonna call it prophetic inspiration anyway. Number two has to do with errors in the book of Moses. This is page 34. Now, I had never heard this before, and I'm not exactly sure what it is that he's referring to because he doesn't go into detail on this matter. He simply refers to it in passing. But what he says is this about the Book of Moses, and he talks about its transmission along the way from the RLDS Church, who originally had possession of it, until it came into the possession of the LDS Church. He says, when Richard's committee, that would be Franklin D. Richards, when Franklin D. Richard's committee created the 1878 version of the Book of Moses, they placed more confidence in the work of the RLDS Church than Brigham Young apparently did. For Orson Pratt, in effect, copied material from the RLDS Church's published text into the Pearl of Great Price. And now, Terrell Givens says this. Along the way, he corrected some of the RLDS Church's errors, but also inadvertently imported many others. So, he's saying that Orson Pratt inadvertently imported many other errors into the Joseph Smith translation, and then says, which have been retained in the modern editions of the book of moses now he doesn't go into detail as to what these errors are that got inadvertently copied into the book of moses in 1878 and which have been maintained in the modern book of moses but this is one of those other instances in which terrell givens is subversive he undermines our confidence in the written text of the book of moses as we have it in the pearl of great price published by the lds church today that of course is a relatively minor example compared to number one but now we go to number three which we get to in page 37. here he talks about how it is that moses chapter one which has to do with moses having a face-to-face meeting with god and then receiving as a revelation in vision his knowledge of the creation of the earth okay let me back up here moses chapter one is the introduction now to Genesis it stands apart and before Genesis in the Joseph Smith translation and it is Joseph Smith's method of explaining how it is that Moses knew about the creation of account he obviously was not present when the creation occurred he lived many many thousands of years after that how does moses know about the creation account and how it is that god created the heavens and the earth not only that how does he know about adam and eve etc and chapter one establishes that moses knew about this because all of this information was revealed to him in a vision from God that Moses has a face-to-face meeting with God that he proves himself faithful to God by detecting Satan appearing and claiming to be God and Moses realizes that Satan does not have the glory God had, so he's able to detect that Satan is a deceiver. God appears now and then gives him this glorious vision in which is contained the creation of the earth. So this is the explanation as to how Moses can write about what we have in the Bible is chapter one, beginning with the creation of the earth. So what it is that Terrell Givens does, and he's very, very smart about this, and I think this is quite an astute observation on his part, as are many of the other things that he has to say, even though they're subversive, is that he suggests that Joseph Smith got the idea for creating this personal encounter between Moses and God from the Bible. Once again, let me back up. The Bible will have different gaps in it. In other words, it tells many, many stories, but it will also have gaps in it where there are no stories contained, but which we might expect there to be stories that were not recorded. A classic example of this is in the New Testament. We have very little about Jesus's childhood. We read about his birth. We read about a story at the temple when he is 12 or 13, and then we end up with Jesus being 30 years old and getting baptized by John at the River Jordan. So there's a massive amount of time when Jesus is a child growing up that we don't know anything about him from the Bible. And so what happened anciently was that many writers looked at this as an opportunity to exercise their creative and religious writing skills, and they filled in those gaps. And they gave us many wonderful stories about the childhood of Jesus. And those are contained in apocryphal writings, such as the infancy gospel of Thomas and also the proto-evangelium of James. Okay, so having given you an example of the type of thing I'm talking about. This is what Terrell Givens suggests that Joseph Smith did in coming up with his story of Moses' face-to-face meeting with God as recorded in Moses chapter one, which is the prologue to Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. And Terrell Givens cites to an example in the Old Testament where a meeting between Moses and God is referred to, but never described. And he suggests that this was the genesis for Joseph Smith's idea to come up with Moses chapter one. Yes, he actually does this. He's really intelligent, but subversive. That's the problem. Page 37, the Bible's status as sufficient may be a Christian commonplace, but the Bible's incompleteness as a record is readily acknowledged by the text itself. The world itself could not contain the books that should be written, writes John, if a complete record of even Christ's mortal doings were the goal. A passage from the Old Testament, here he gets to it now, pay attention, a passage from the Old Testament suggests that episodes, not only from Christ's life, but from the Mosaic narrative, are missing From the text we now have, where Moses, in the 12th chapter of Numbers, alludes to, and then neglects to reveal, a particular visionary encounter with God, Smith, that's Joseph Smith, he refers to him as Smith throughout, Smith may have found all the prompt he needed to go beyond mere textual edits to a quest for a more ample vision to fill in the missing chapters in the story. So you can see what I mean about this language being rather dense, and you really have to pay attention, or at least I do, and read it closely and parse it out in order to understand what it is that Terrell Gibbons is saying, and that's why I went to so much effort to give an introduction just to this one example. He's talking about Numbers chapter 12, And he says that there's a story there that alludes to a particular visionary encounter with God that Moses had right, but then neglects to reveal it. And then he says that Joseph Smith may have found in this story in Numbers chapter 12 all the prompt he needed to go beyond mere textual edits. That's the balance of the Joseph Smith translation. You see, Moses chapter 1 is different because it's not just a textual edit. It is a completely new chapter as a prologue to the Joseph Smith translation. Most of the Joseph Smith translation is mere edits. They're just textual edits, and that's what he means here. That Joseph Smith may have found in this story all the prompt he needed to go beyond mere textual edits to a quest for a more ample vision to fill in the missing chapters in the story. So what Terrell Givens is suggesting here is that it was this story which refers to a face-to-face vision that Moses had with God, but then it doesn't tell the story that Joseph Smith used then to fill in the gaps in coming up with Moses chapter 1, just as ancient writers used the blank canvas of the childhood of Jesus given us in the four Gospels in order to fill in stories, miraculous stories about Jesus' childhood powers and escapades. Terrell Givens goes on to tell us what that chapter says in Numbers, Numbers chapter 12. In that chapter of the Bible... The Lord promises that he will speak face to face with his prophet, not in dark speeches, but openly, so that Moses will actually see the similitude of the Lord. The Bible, however, contains no account of this promised visitation. And then he says this whether such a lacuna, you see, he uses these huge words. A lacuna is a gap in a text, all right? Whether such a lacuna or whether such a missing story in Numbers chapter 12 was the catalyst for Joseph Smith, we do not know. But the first tangible fruit of Joseph Smith's work on the new translation of the Bible was a detailed account that describes the unrecorded fulfillment of that promise. And then he goes on to say, evidence that Joseph Smith was in fact restoring that missing narrative was confirmed to him in the same revelation so terrell gibbons is first noticing then describing and then openly acknowledging the very real possibility that joseph smith saw this missing story which is referred to generally in numbers chapter 12 but never described specifically and uses that as a catalyst yes he uses that word catalyst once again catalyst theory remember he'll use that with the book of abraham as well but this was joseph smith's catalyst in order to come up with Moses chapter one. Now he says that whether this was the catalyst for Joseph Smith, we do not know, but then he goes on to suggest that in fact it was and provides evidence for it. So you can see how subversive this is to a person's testimony. Terrell Givens will actually make mention of these naturalistic possibilities to explain Joseph Smith's translation and his revelation, but he will do little to nothing to explain how that comports with an understanding of Joseph Smith as receiving a revealed text from God. He makes it look more like Joseph Smith is making this up as he goes along and using his own imagination and calling it revelation instead of receiving pure revelation from God itself. And this will manifest itself in other parts of this chapter where Terrell Givens will actually refer to Joseph Smith as exercising, quote, revelatory imagination, unquote. And he will also refer to it as prophetic imagination and we'll get to that at the end of these examples but i just want to bring it up now because this is the kind of thing that he's describing example number four also comes from page 37 at the bottom this time and it refers to moses chapter one where moses is shown a panoramic vision of the cosmos in which moses is given to understand that there are many many other earths other than this earth and those other worlds are also populated with their own inhabitants terrell Givens writes This stupefying vision overwhelms Moses with his own finitude and smallness. Now, he quotes from Moses, now I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Terrell Givens goes on, that God's creations include other inhabited worlds had been hinted or brazenly posited many times in the past. So once again, he's going to say, you know, there's this incredible vision That Moses receives from God where he sees all these inhabited worlds out there. This isn't the only inhabited world, this earth on which we live. There are many other inhabited worlds. And he's going to show, Terrell Givens is going to show that there were other sources that contained the same idea, either hinted at or brazenly posited, as he puts it, many times in the past. And then he gives some examples. When John Milton's Adam, this is from Paradise Lost. When John Milton's Adam asks the angel Raphael about the seeming waste of so many underutilized heavenly spheres, he is told that they are ordained for uses to his Lord best known. That would be one of the hints that he refers to. In Smith's own day, now he's getting much closer to the mark and closer to a source that Joseph Smith may have relied on. In Smith's own day, Raphael's counterpart was more forthcoming. And here he's referring to Lord Byron's play, which was titled Cain. I'd never heard of this play before, maybe you have. But here Terrell Givens is going to tell us about Lord Byron's play titled Cain, which was extant in Joseph Smith's own day. And in that play, Lucifer tells Adam's son of worlds greater than thine own, inhabited by greater things, and they themselves far more in number than the dust of thy dull earth. Period. End of quote. Now that sounds an awful lot like the vision that Moses is given in Moses chapter one, that there are worlds greater than thine own. This is from the play Cain, that there are worlds greater than thine own inhabited by greater things and they themselves far more in number than the dust of thy dull earth. Thomas Dick, this is not the only one. There are more sources that Joseph Smith could have drawn upon in coming up with this doctrine. Thomas Dick, whom Smith read. Now notice that. Terrell Givens tells us that this is not only a contemporary source, but that actually Joseph Smith read the writings of Thomas Dick. Thomas Dick, whom Smith read, contemplated a, quote, history of numerous worlds dispersed throughout the universe, replenished with inhabitants, with their own modes of existence, of improvement, and of social intercourse, including solemn forms of worship, adoration. So Terrell Givens provides multiple sources for this idea on which Joseph Smith may have drawn in order to create this story to fill in the gap left by Numbers chapter 12. Now that Terrell Givens has shown that Joseph Smith likely drew upon these other sources and these ideas in creating chapter 1 of the Book of Moses, what does Terrell Givens do to respond to it? Virtually nothing. All he says is, never before in Christian history, however, had such multiple habitations been made an affirmative article of faith. That's all he says. That's really not much of a difference, and it really doesn't address the fact that he has given multiple places and sources that Joseph Smith could have drawn on for this idea. And then he just continues on and talks about how philosophically speaking, this idea is is a big idea. It's a big deal. It's one of the most important doctrines in Mormonism. And certainly, it's a very important doctrine. I agree with that. But having shown the sources on which Joseph Smith could have drawn, he now goes on merrily on his way and talks about other things. This is, once again, why I consider this to be subversive. And I'm not saying, by the way, that Terrell Givens is being intentionally subversive. I think he's being scholarly. I think he's being forthcoming. I think he's writing very interesting things. But the bottom line is, is that what he is doing is potentially eroding faith in people who are going to read his books and actually pay enough attention to it to understand what it is he's saying, and in my case, having to read it not once, but twice and carefully and with pen and marker in hand. Now, that's just the first four examples. There are 11 in total. Let's go on to number 5. This is going to page 39. Oh, and this has to do with Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which most of you will know contains two different creation accounts. Now, scholars today believe that these are two different creation accounts that were created at different times in Jewish history, that both of them got incorporated into the first two chapters of Genesis, and that they come from different schools of thought, and they have a different order of creation. They have a completely different method by which God creates, and one, he speaks things into existence, and the other, he comes down to the earth, and he actually gets his hands dirty and forming the body of Adam from the clay of the earth. But Joseph Smith, in the book of Moses, recasts these two stories. Instead, the first story becomes the spiritual creation and the second story becomes the physical creation. That's how Joseph Smith understood these two creation accounts in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So here's what he says about that because he'll give sources that Joseph Smith could have drawn on in order to come up with the idea that this was a spiritual creation account and then a physical creation account. Here's what he says. Smith recasts the first and second creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2, not as slightly different versions, but as the actual creation of the physical world and its inhabitants, in distinction from a record of an earlier creation, which was a kind of spiritual Prototype. All those plants and animals and humans as well, Moses learns, were created spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. Before the documentary hypothesis explained Genesis 1 and 2 as simply two unsynthesized narratives from two divergent ancient sources, some commentators, and here's where he's going to go to the sources again on which Joseph Smith could have drawn, some commentators. Explain chapter 2 as referring to an ideational creation, or in other words, a creation in the mind of God, an ideational creation, a kind of divinely imagined blueprint existing only in the mind of God. Now that sounds a lot like a spiritual creation. Jewish traditions abound of a spiritual creation that preceded the physical. Paul Davies insisted that the Hebrew emphasis on the unity of body and spirit precluded an independent or prior existence for that spirit. Apparent references to such, as in Psalm 139 and Jeremiah, he relegated to ideal existence in the mind and purpose of God. However, and here he gives a really good source, however, the 17th century Jewish scholar Manasseh ben Israel cites chapter 3 of the Bereshith Rabbah as teaching. That human souls existed before embodiment, not just as ideas in the mind of God, but as entities with whom he actually consulted before creation, in order to make sure he did not clothe them with matter against their will. So here, Terrell Givens is following his usual pattern of citing two sources that predate Joseph Smith that contain the same remarkable ideas that Joseph Smith ends up incorporating into his Joseph Smith translation of the Book of Moses. Let's go to example number six. This is on page 42. And this has to do with the existence of a book called the Apocryphal New Testament, which was published in the early 1800s by an English satirist named William Hone. This is what Terrell Givens writes about this. In 1817, the English satirist William Hone, H-O-N-E, suffered three high-profile trials for his impious attacks on Christianity. His greatest defense, however, was in his simple publication of a collection of ancient documents titled the Apocryphal New Testament. The threat this publication posed to the orthodoxy of the day was evident in its full title, which constituted a disconcerting assault on popular notions of biblical canonicity. And here he quotes the rest of the title, being all the gospels, epistles, and other pieces now extant, attributed in the first four centuries to Jesus Christ, his apostles, and their companions, and not included in the New Testament by its compilers." End of quote. Here, readers could find the gospel of the birth of Mary, and Jesus' infancy narratives, remember I mentioned those before, and Jesus' infancy narratives, along with the Gospel of Nicodemus and the General Epistle of Barnabas. Diluting the singularity and virtual inevitability of Christianity's key text, i.e. the Bible, of Christianity's key text was dangerous enough. In other words, simply publishing these apocryphal works was dangerous enough, but his real provocation was in the particular way he formatted the book, in double columns, with verse numbers just like the King James Version. The visual impact of the book was to blur crucial lines of demarcation and usurp the emblems of scriptural utterance. In other words, Hone's work was viewed as an assault on what Thomas Rennell called the radical and unassailable ground of distinction between scripture and non-scripture. No middle ground was possible in that view. Now I think that example as well gives you an indication of how dense the writing of Terrell Givens can be. But what he's basically saying is that before joseph smith produced the book of mormon before he produced the book of moses in his joseph smith translation there was a publication in england which was a collection of apocryphal new testament books so the idea that the bible did not contain everything that had been written down was something that was known in joseph smith's day in other words creating the book of mormon or the Joseph Smith translation, but particularly the Book of Mormon, was not so fantastic as it might seem to some. Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon in a context where many people were beginning to believe and understand that scriptural texts existed outside the Bible that had not been included in the Bible. And this is an example that Terrell Givens gives us of exactly that sort of thing. I also thought it was interesting that Terrell Givens mentions that this book, the Apocryphal New Testament, this collection of Apocryphal books, and that book was published in 1820. Footnote 74 on Chapter 1 contains that information. It was published in London in 1820, 10 years before the Book of Mormon was published, and 10 to 11 years before Moses Chapter 1 was written by Joseph Smith. But it's also interesting that one of the things that made this book, the Apocryphal New Testament, considered to be so dangerous is the way in which it was published. It was published basically in the format of the Bible, in double columns with verse numbers, just like the King James Version. Well, the Book of Mormon, when it was published, was not published in double columns with verse numbers. It certainly is that way today. But when it was originally published in 1830, it was not published with either double columns or verse numbers. It was published more in the format of a novel. And yet Joseph Smith decided to publish it in a binding and in a format that exactly resembled the Bibles that were common in his day. So it looked like the Bible, very much as the publications today by the LDS Church of the Bible, as well as the triple combination, are made to look like each other. They are produced in such a way as to appear to be equivalent. And Joseph Smith produced his Book of Mormon in 1830 in the same way. That's more of a side note than anything else. The main point being that Terrell Givens once again gives us an antecedent to Joseph Smith, a source for ideas on which Joseph Smith could have drawn in producing his scripture. And the very idea here, that additional scripture was not only possible, but was in fact inevitable. Next we go to page 48, now we're on example number seven. Now in example number seven, Terrell Givens is not giving another source that predates Joseph Smith on which he may have drawn in order to come up with his doctrinal ideas, instead, what he is indicating is that Terrell Givens has an understanding of what Joseph Smith's doctrines mean that may be escaping the common member and may even be escaping the leaders of the church. He indicates that it's not being taught openly now, but he thinks he understands where it leads but he's not going to tell us exactly what he means by that. So here he's talking about the prophecy of Enoch, which ends up being contained in the book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. Here's what he says. This prophecy of Enoch sowed the seeds of the Latter-day Saints' most distinctive and vibrant doctrines in the following ways. It produced the most emphatic version of a passable deity, the christian world then knew and what he means by a passable deity he includes now parenthetically it's a god of passions and emotions that's what passable means it's something that has passions if god is passable it means he has passions it had long been the tradition in Christianity and still is in Protestant and Catholic churches that God is a being without body parts or passions. So if he's without passions, that means he's impassable. If he has passions, that means he is passable. Joseph Smith has a God who has passions as related in the prophecy of Enoch. Therefore, he is a passable God. Sorry, I told you it was dense. It needs a little bit of unpacking. Once again, he says it produced the most emphatic version of a passable deity the Christian world then knew. It catalyzed The LDS understanding of and enthusiasm for the doctrine of pre-mortal existence. That's true. Now listen to this part. It foreshadowed the church's distinctive doctrine of theosis or divination and of course that means man can become God. Now in the middle of this sentence where he says it foreshadowed the church's distinctive doctrine of theosis or divination, he includes this parenthetical comment. This is what I'm talking about where he says, and still might more vitally inform. Okay now listen to this. I'm going to read the whole sentence together with the parenthetical comment. It foreshadowed, in other words, this prophecy of Enoch, the scriptures that the LDS church has in the book of Moses, It foreshadowed and still might more vitally inform the church's distinctive doctrine of theosis or divination. So he's talking about the doctrine of man can become God, man can become like God, theosis, divination. And yet Terrell Givens appears to be suggesting here that he knows or he understands or he perceives or he thinks that there is material here that might more vitally inform the church's distinctive doctrine of theosis or divination. What are you talking about, Professor Givens? He doesn't tell us, but all I can tell you is that if I were a leader of the church and if I'm reading the sentence, I would be calling Professor Givens into my office and I'd be saying, hey, Terrell, what do you mean by this? What are you saying that you know that you think maybe we're not talking about that there's something there that might more vitally inform our doctrine? What is this that you're talking about? Because it sounds like you're trying to say that you know more than we know as the leaders of the church. And this is one of the things that neo-apologists get into. Now, regular apologists get into this a bit too, but neo-apologists tend to recreate Mormonism in their own intellectual image. And I think this is what Terrell Givens does. By studying and going in depth into Mormonism and looking at the ideas, the philosophy, the theology, where it leads, where it can lead, he goes deeper into the scriptures, he goes deeper into Mormonism than the leaders have ever thought about going. And what he ends up doing is creating a different kind of Mormonism. It is certainly a Mormonism that is different than the dominant narrative. What leader of the church maintaining the dominant narrative would ever speak of Joseph Smith's prophetic imagination or Joseph Smith's revelatory imagination? answer, none of them. And I expect that somewhere in his mind, maybe in the back of his mind, maybe in the front of his mind, Terrell Givens is aware that he has created a different Mormonism than is taught by the leaders of the church. And it is unclear to me whether he thinks that the church is okay with his different Mormonism, whether they will tolerate his Mormonism, whether they actually already believe his Mormonism, but can't talk about it publicly because, you know, they're the leaders of the church, or whether he is attempting to influence the the leaders of the church and the church itself to follow his new formulation, his new brand, his new kind of Mormonism. And once again we get back to the idea of Terrell Givens being a subversive element in the LDS church. It is hard to imagine any leader of the church reading these words, understanding these words, and not consider Terrell Givens to be, to one degree or another, subversive to their leadership claims and authority. The next example of this sort of thing by Professor Givens is example eight. This is found on page 59 of the book, still in the first chapter, dealing with the Joseph Smith translation. There, Terrell Givens is talking about Joseph Smith's idea of restoration, and specifically Joseph Smith's reliance on a passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, where it talks about the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God where she is nourished for a time, that woman being the church, as was a common interpretation at the time of Joseph Smith, in which he apparently adopted. Not only did he adopt it from Revelation chapter 12, he also apparently adopted it from an individual named Alexander Frazier, who wrote about this passage from Revelation chapter 12 in his book, Key to the Prophecies. Here's what Professor Givens writes about that. Joseph Smith was deeply attuned to this record of lamentable failure, both before and after the accomplishment of Enoch. That would be the establishment of a Zion society. But Smith believed that Enoch offered the model and blueprint for getting all the way to Zion. In 1795, this is from page 59, in 1795, i.e. in plenty of time for the book of Moses and Joseph Smith to know about it, in 1795, the Scottish minister Alexander Fraser published his popular work, Key to the Prophecies, which included a gloss of a passage in Revelation 12 that was of special interest to Protestants of the era. Now, a gloss is an interpretation of a certain passage. And that passage is, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, where she is nourished for a time. In Fraser's interpretation, this prophecy of the woman in the wilderness refers to the time when, as the visible church declined from the doctrines and precepts of Christianity, the true church of Christ gradually retired from the view of men, till at length the true church of Christ, considered as a community, wholly disappeared. And there he's quoting from Fraser's book. Terrell Givens goes on, sometime between 1829 and 1835, joseph smith enthusiastically embraced a kindred version of restoration as a reassemblage of a scattered rather than abandoned church in the wilderness and here terrell Givens makes the parenthetical note in the 1835 edition of his revelations i.e the doctrine and covenants he even changed the wording of the 1833 book of commandments section 4 quote i will establish my church to reflect this new reading of revelation 12 i.e., that he is to preside over the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness. Terrell Givens then says, if he Joseph, if he Joseph Smith was in fact influenced in this regard by Fraser, he may have read Fraser's further comments on the allegory. Now here, Terrell Givens merely puts it forward as a possibility, but there's a footnote at the end of that sentence. It's footnote 157. If you actually go to the footnote and read it, he seems much more certain that Joseph Smith relied on Fraser's book. Here's what he says in footnote 157, quote, further evidence of Smith's indebtedness to Fraser." is that immediately following the language borrowed from Revelation 12, he adds to Book of Commandments, Chapter 4, or Section 4, Verse 5, the same Solomonic language Frasier employs about a church clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. We hear that phrase frequently in the Doctrine and Covenants, but it comes originally from the Song of Solomon, chapter six, verse 10. So what Terrell Givens appears to be saying here is adding evidence that Joseph Smith relied on Frazier by saying that Frazier employed that phrase from the Song of Solomon, clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners, and that Joseph Smith added the same Solomonic language. That's why he says Solomonic language. It's because it's from the Song of Solomon. That Joseph Smith added the same Solomonic language that Fraser employed about a church clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banner. So it appears, if you actually read the footnote, that Terrell Givens is pretty darn sure that Joseph Smith did rely on Fraser's book and was influenced by it in his conception of the apostasy as well as the restoration, even using the same language in the same context that Frasier used it. So that is example eight. Example nine has to do with the doctrine of progression between kingdoms. Yes, I said progression between kingdoms. That's actually one of Bruce R. McConkey's seven deadly heresies, as you may recall. This is from page 80 of Terrell Given's new book. There he writes this. The three-tiered nature of the heavens Smith described has been taken by some to effectively replace one set of judgmental distinctions with another. By the way, there's a comment at the end of that. That's not the complete sentence. But what Terrell Givens is talking about, to whom he is referring, is Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith and any other church leader who says there is no progression between kingdoms. Let me read that again so you can understand exactly what it is that Terrell Givens is getting at. The three-tiered nature of the heaven Smith described, i.e. section 76, the three-tiered nature of the heaven Smith described has been taken by some, Bruce R. McConkie, to effectively replace one set of judgmental distinctions, i.e. heaven versus hell, with another, i.e. three heavens and outer darkness. Okay, he goes on. But Joseph Smith apparently believed that all entrance into heaven, all those who go to heaven, all entrance, TS, entrance into heaven, would progress through the levels to eventual fullness of glory. So here, Terrell Givens is not giving another source that Joseph Smith likely relied on in coming up with his unique doctrines. What he is saying is that he believes that Joseph Smith believed that there was progression from one kingdom to another until all eventually received celestial glory, which puts him at direct opposition to the leadership of of the church at least those who believe and teach that there is no progression between kingdoms and if there has been a change in that doctrine in the lds church since bruce r announced his seven deadly heresies back in 1980 i have yet to hear about it once again terrell Givens is being a subversive influence subversive to the testimony of members and subversive to the leadership claims and doctrinal infallibility claims Of the leadership of the church, Terrell Givens is proposing a different Mormonism than the dominant narrative, an earlier Mormonism, a Mormonism that he sees as being reflected in the teachings of Joseph Smith and that the leaders of the church today have somehow managed to lose their way and teach something contradictory to what Joseph Smith originally taught. Can you say subversive? I knew you could. We only have two examples left in chapter one. Example number 10 has to do with the borrowings from the Joseph Smith translation into the Doctrine and Covenants. This is found on pages 89 through 90 of his book. Now this is a very, very interesting part of Terrell Givens' book, he believes that not only is Joseph Smith influenced by other writings and other ideas that were current in his time and in his melu in coming up with his Joseph Smith translation and his other revelations, Terrell Givens believes and presents evidence in support of his belief that Joseph Smith's work on his translation of the Bible ended up impacting the revelations he received from God and which were subsequently incorporated as sections in the Doctrine and Covenants there is actually a dependency, or as he puts it, an intertextuality, between sections of the Doctrine and Covenants and the Joseph Smith translation. So not only is the Joseph Smith translation being influenced by other ideas and writings in Joseph Smith's culture, but that the revelations that he receives, as recorded subsequently in the Doctrine and Covenants, are themselves dependent upon the Joseph Smith translation. Here's the first example, Terrell Givens, of this somewhat subversive theory. In August 1831, Smith was working through the text of Matthew 17. So he's doing his Joseph Smith translation. He's at Matthew 17, and this is the transfiguration account of Jesus, wherein Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. Now Terrell Givens writes, in Smith's mind, apparently, the transfiguration of Christ elicited images of of a future transfiguration of the entire earth, and he cast the connection between the two as a teaching the New Testament record omitted. In a revelation dictated that same month, he quotes the Savior referring to a day yet to come when the earth shall be transfigured even according to the pattern which was shown unto mine apostles upon the mount. So, Terrell Givens is saying that Joseph Smith is doing the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 17 where he talks about the transfiguration of Jesus and then in Joseph Smith's mind this appears to reflect or suggest a connection between the transfiguration of Jesus and the transfiguration of the entire earth when Jesus comes again. And then he places this transfiguration of the earth into the vision that occurred on the mount back when Jesus was transfigured in the New Testament. So in order to try and be clear here, Joseph Smith is translating the account of Jesus's transfiguration on the mount. It brings to his mind, Joseph Smith's mind, according to Terrell Givens, the idea that the entire earth will be transfigured when Jesus comes again. Joseph Smith does not put that idea into the Joseph Smith translation, but instead he puts it into the mouth of God in Doctrine and Covenants, section 63, verse 21, which says, When the earth shall be transfigured, even according to the pattern which was shown unto mine apostles upon the mount of of which account the fullness ye have not yet received. So here we have the Joseph Smith translation having a direct impact on the revelations Joseph Smith received from the mouth of God. So here he has his Joseph Smith translation serving as a source for a revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants. Terrell Givens gives us another example of this sort of thing lower down on the same page in his book. Sometimes the influence of Smith's revision work Joseph Smith Translation resulted in simple rhetorical borrowing. In October 1831, he was working through the early chapters of Mark. In the third verse, John the Baptist preaches, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That month, Smith dictated a revelation, whose opening words were identical, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So here he sees a connection that Joseph Smith is reading through the Bible. He knows he's reading through the Bible because he's doing the Joseph Smith translation at the same time. And this is in October of 1831, where he's working through Mark. And what Terrell Givens sees is Joseph Smith reading language while he's going through the Bible. And suddenly that same language, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight, appears almost immediately thereafter in a revelation he is receiving from God. For some reason, The words that Joseph Smith is reading suddenly get put into the mouth of God as a direct revelation to him in the doctrine and covenants. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Terrell Givens gives another example of this immediately following. At other times, textual revisions struck him as important enough to recast as revelation in their own right. So in other words, he's going through the Joseph Smith translation, he actually makes a revision to one of the verses, and then that revision shows up in a revelation from the Doctrine and Covenants. Here's the example he gives. One such instance touched on the veracity of his own claim to have seen God in Christ. He was translating the Gospel of John, which says in its first chapter, No man hath seen God at any time. Now, obviously, that needs to be changed because Joseph Smith had seen God. As noted earlier, Smith adjusted this text in his translation, making such a vision possible, but conditional and consistent with his own experience. He changed it to say, No man hath seen God at any time, except he hath borne record of the Son. So we can see how Joseph Smith changed the Bible in order to make it match what his own claims were. But then Terrell Gibbons makes this fascinating observation. Smith then inserted that edited passage into a revelation, which further edits, quote, For no man hath seen God at any time in the flesh, except quickened by the Spirit of God. And that can be found in Doctrine and Covenants 65 verse 1. So Terrell Givens is showing that Joseph Smith's revelations appear to use as their source not only the Bible that Joseph Smith is reading at the time, even having direct quotations from the Bible put into God's mouth, but even Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible verse then gets apparently used as a source and the translation is put into God's mouth in the form of a revelation from God. Here's the next example he gives. Another form of borrowing occurred when a New Testament injunction was particularly apt to the immediate situation of Smith's own flock. Going now to page 90. As a prophet seeking to emulate the Great Commission of Matthew 28, that's go into the world and preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, the Great Commission of Matthew 28, with urgency and apostolic authority, he found inspired counsel for his own missionaries in Jesus' directive to his emissaries. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you. When ye depart then, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them, as Mark recorded. So once again, he's saying, Joseph Smith is working through the Bible during the Joseph Smith translation. He gets to Mark. He reads this statement of Jesus in Mark, which statement goes on, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Reading these words, this is what Terrell Given says, reading these words as the calendar turned to 1831, Smith incorporated them into a January revelation, making the threat only slightly less anachronistic. And what he means by that, he's going to take out Sodom and Gomorrah because that would be anachronistic in a revelation given in 1831. And here's what Joseph Smith says in the revelation or what he has God say. Once again, it's going to be quoting these words of Jesus from Mark. And in whatsoever house ye enter, and they receive you not, ye shall depart speedily from that house, and shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them, and it shall be more tolerable for the heathen, not Sodom and Gomorrah, but for the heathen in the day of judgment than for that house. So what Terrell Givens has done is give us multiple examples of how it is that the Joseph Smith Translation and Joseph Smith's work on the Joseph Smith Translation ends up having actual quotations and borrowings from what he's working on, either the Bible or the translation he's doing and the amendments he's making to the Biblical text suddenly show up in the mouth of God when God is speaking to Joseph Smith. Now, on the one hand, One can see how it is that language that Joseph Smith is reading can suddenly be recast as revelations from God because Joseph Smith is receiving these revelations from God in his own language and according to his own understanding, right? On the other hand, these are not just phrases. These are not just particular ways of phrasing things. These are actual messages. These are substantive messages like the one about shaking the dust from off your feet if you go into a place and try and teach the gospel and they don't receive you. Shake the dust from off your feet. It will be more tolerable for the heathen than it will be for that house. That's an entire message. And what it looks like then, this is the other hand. On the one hand, it's like Joseph Smith is using language to capture God's revelations to him in the Doctrine and Covenants. But these, as I say, are entire messages. So on the other hand, why is it we have to ask? Why is it that God's messages... To Joseph Smith and the Doctrine and Covenants seem to mirror exactly the messages that Joseph Smith is reading about or even changing in the Joseph Smith Translation as he works his way through the Bible. There appears to be a significant dependency there, a correlation, a correspondence, an intertextuality, a borrowing. So what Terrell Givens is saying here, in sum, is that Joseph Smith not only borrowed ideas from other secular sources that he was familiar with and that were available in his society at his time and place. He also borrowed for his Revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants the Bible as a source. And not just the Bible, but also even his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible as a source. And he lays these out. I think this is brilliant on Professor Given's part to notice these things and to write them down. The only problem is that they are once again Subversive. Why is God suddenly giving messages to Joseph Smith that Joseph Smith just read about in the Bible? Why is God suddenly giving messages to Joseph Smith that Joseph Smith just changed in the Bible? Why is this suddenly what is on God's mind, when we can see that it is also exactly what is on Joseph Smith's mind, and it is on Joseph Smith's mind, apparently, right before it's on God's mind? That's the question. That's the subversive element here. And finally, example 11. This is from page 91. And here, Terrell Givens suggests that even the opposite happened. He's given these several examples of the Joseph Smith translation influencing the Doctrine and Covenants. Now he wants to give an example of the Doctrine and Covenants influencing the Joseph Smith translation. It goes both ways. Here's how he starts out this part. This is a bit complicated. I'm not going to go through the entire thing. Please get the book and read it if you want to understand it in its fullness. Most intriguing of all the intertextual relations, i.e. borrowings, most intriguing of all the intertextual relations that emerged from Smith's work on the Bible are those between the book of Moses and the September 1830 revelation, later published as section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In conjunction with the evidence already presented, a look at this intertextuality allows us to conceptualize Joseph Smith's revelatory imagination and I circled that expression in red pen, Joseph Smith's revelatory imagination in new ways. He goes on, the same revelation contained a number of unrelated and intriguing doctrinal innovations, but this time they seem to have anticipated rather than responded to his work with the Bible revisions. That's how he says, that instead of the Joseph Smith Translation or the Bible being reflected or borrowed from in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Doctrine and Covenants, here Section 29, appears to be affecting the Joseph Smith Translation. But this time they seem to have anticipated rather than responded to his work with the Bible revisions. In particular, the Genesis material that became the Book of Moses. A number of parallels in phrasing make the intertextuality clear. Once again, intertextuality has become the $5 word, which means the borrowing, the dependency. Lesser minds would call it the plagiarism. A number of parallels in phrasing make the intertextuality clear, and he gives a table here. It's 1.1. It's on page 91, in which he shows the corresponding parallels between Doctrine and Covenant, section 29 and the Joseph Smith translation of the book of Moses. And these basically have to do with the description of the premortal existence and the rebellion of Satan in heaven and the creation of all things spiritually before they were created physically. The reason why he thinks the intertextuality goes the other way now is because the revelation, section 29, was given before Joseph Smith did his translation work on the book of Moses. Section 29 was given or received in September of 1830. That's before Joseph Smith begins his work on the book of Moses. And yet the book of Moses appears obviously to be borrowing ideas and phrases from this section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Here's the examples. Section 29 says, number one, the Lord created all things, both spiritual and temporal, first spiritual, secondly temporal. We all know that expression. But here's a Joseph Smith translation from Moses. All things were before created, but spiritually. Second example, he rebelled against me, i.e. Satan. He rebelled against me saying, give me thine honor. That's from section 29. Book of Moses says, Satan came before me saying, give me thine honor. See, it's an exact parallel. The book of Moses is taking material from Section 29 in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, of course, the Doctrine and Covenants had not been printed yet, but Section 29, or what became Section 29, had been given. Here's the third example there. They should not die until I should send forth angels to declare... Unto Adam and Eve repentance and redemption through faith on the name of mine only begotten son. Adam and Eve will not die until they get a chance to hear the gospel preached to them through angels. Here's the book of Moses. An angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam saying, Thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son. See, it actually happens there. Fourth example. Children are redeemed from the foundation of the world, that's from section 29. Book of Moses says children are whole from the foundation of the world. And finally, the fifth example here, and it must needs be that the devil should tempt the children of men or they could not be agents unto themselves. As from section 29, the book of Moses says, and it is given unto them to know good from evil, wherefore they are agents unto themselves. So that is the 11th example of how not only do Joseph Smith's revelations appear to be dependent upon his translation of the Bible, but his translation of the Bible appears to be dependent, at least in this one instance, on a revelation that he had received prior to his translation of the Bible, and that is ultimately, canonized to section 29 in the Doctrine and Covenants. It is a remarkable find. Terrell Givens is brilliant. There's no doubt about that. But there's also no doubt to my mind that he is subversive. Now that's the end of the 11th example. But as I was doing more study, I found the 12th example. There is an even dozen of examples just in the first part of Terrell Givens' book. Examples of Terrell Givens being a subversive element. And this has to do with with Joseph Smith's prophecy on war, what came to be canonized as section 87 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And this is found on page 18 of Terrell Given's book. Now, let me first tell you why it is that this is subversive and then I'll read it to you, okay? The reason is because this revelation on war, and I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. If not, please go and read section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The revelation on war is dated 1832, and it talks about the southern states rebelling against the northern states and Great Britain getting involved, and then wars poured out upon all the earth. Well, there was certainly a secession crisis in 1832 going on, when Joseph Smith received this revelation. But by the time it was published in 1851, that secession crisis had ended. And it is a typical apologetic tactic to say that the secession crisis was over, but they went ahead and published it anyway. They didn't hide it away and say, oops, I guess that didn't come to pass. Better not put that in print. They went ahead and printed it in 1851, or at least Franklin D. Richards did over in England when he collected the Pearl of Great Price because what is now Section 87, the Prophecy on War, was originally in the first edition of the Pearl of Great Price in 1851. That's one of the differences in its contents, in its original form. I don't know if you're listening to my lecture series from institute class 30 years ago, 1989, called Defending the Faith, but I addressed this very issue and I made this very argument. And until I read Terrell Given's book, I still thought it was a valid argument, But here, he subverts my argument and lets some of the wind out of my tires. I was a little bit disappointed to hear what Terrell Givens has to say because he says that even though There was a secession crisis going on in 1832 when Joseph Smith received the revelation, and it certainly could have been in response to it. It seems to be in response to everything, his revelations now, at least according to Terrell Givens, that by the time it was published in 1851, that secession crisis was over, but there was another crisis going on in the United States that was even worse. And of course, these were all just the rumblings that led up to the Civil War itself, which commenced in 1861, ten years after this was published in 1851. Here's the paragraph now that Terrell Givens writes, the second revelation, dated 1832, section 87 in current editions, was equally tied to millennialist concerns, i.e. Jesus is coming soon, but expressed with rather more risk. Well, the reason it's more risk is because it's detailed about what's going to happen. He goes on, in this heretofore unpublished prophecy, Smith clearly referred to a civil war that would soon break out in America, quote, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states, and the southern states will call on other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, to defend themselves. This was perhaps Smith's boldest public assertion of his ability to foretell future events and his prediction that war was soon to be poured out upon all nations. This prediction, he says, would have seemed even more reasonable in 1851 than in 1832. This is where he's totally subversive to this apologetic argument. Not only was this revelation reasonable in 1832 when it was received, he says it was even more reasonable to predict this in 1851 than in 1832. It wasn't less likely to be reasonable then, it was more likely, and he says why. Europe had just gone through the revolutionary convulsions of 1848 and the Missouri Compromise of 1850 was perpetuating a fragile stability at home. So thanks a lot, Terrell Givens, for that. You've just blown one of my last apologetic arguments that I was clinging to desperately or at least that I thought gave some indication that maybe Joseph Smith had some prophetic ability. But no, what Terrell Givens is saying, this is his boldest assertion that war is gonna be poured out upon all nations, it's gonna commence with a civil war in the United States, the southern states are gonna be divided against the northern states, blah, blah, blah. And he says it was very reasonable to make this prediction in 1832, but it was even more reasonable to believe it and make this prediction in 1851 when it was finally published. So there are 12, not 11, but 12 examples that Terrell Givens gives just in the introduction and the first chapter of this book. I haven't even gotten past page 100 of this 277-page volume. I can only guess what other kinds of things he has later on. But so far, just in the first third of this book, we have 12 examples that Terrell Givens gives us that subvert our faith, that subvert our belief in Mormonism, that subvert our belief in Joseph Smith's prophetic abilities, that subvert our belief that Joseph Smith is receiving revelation directly from God rather than taking ideas and concepts and doctrines that he is reading that he is aware of and recasting those ideas in his revelations, whether it's the Adam Clark commentary in the Joseph Smith translation, 200 to 300 examples, whether it's ideas about the pre-mortal existence or ideas about other worlds being inhabited, whether it's Joseph Smith's concept about the apostasy and the restoration, Joseph Smith seems to be taking all these ideas and putting them in revelatory form. And this is why I think Terrell Givens uses such strange expressions. He talks about Joseph Smith's revelatory imagination. Remember, I circled that in red and I mentioned that to you before. When I read this on page 90, I thought, what the hell are you talking about? Revelatory imagination. That seems to me like an oxymoron. A typical Mormon would understand revelation to be something that comes from God, i.e. it comes from outside, but imagination is something that comes from inside. And yet, Terrell Givens is talking about Joseph Smith's revelatory imagination. I don't know what that means, but it sure sounds like Joseph Smith's imagination becomes recast as revelation, at least if we read through the book and look at the examples that Terrell Givens is giving us. I think that's what he means. Joseph Smith's revelatory imagination his imagination becomes revelation that's on page 90 on page 93 he uses a variation of that expression and he talks not about his revelatory imagination but his prophetic imagination let me read that passage to you in closing so a process that commenced in September 1830, he's still talking about section 29 and how it gets quoted and manifested in the Joseph Smith translation of the book of Moses. So a process that commenced in September 1830 with moments of insight, spontaneous glimpses of past worlds and events, fragmentary eruptions, that's I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N-S, fragmentary eruptions of God's voice and inspired pronouncements. All these things pass through a period of incubation, i.e. Joseph Smith ponders about him and thinks about him, passes through a period of incubation during which Joseph Smith's prophetic imagination, there's the expression, during which Joseph Smith's prophetic imagination sorts out, synthesizes, and weaves the scattered fragments into the mythic narratives that constitute his most important revelatory texts. Now, this is toward the end of his chapter one. Chapter two is going to be on the book of Abraham. We're not going to go into the book of Abraham, but obviously this is the same sort of thesis that Terrell Givens is going to use in the book of Abraham because here's what he says in the very next sentence. Something similar to these workings of the prophetic imagination, he uses that expression twice, something similar to these workings of the prophetic imagination is evident in the most controversial of all Smith's productions, the book of Abraham. So you can bet your bottom dollar he's going to be talking a lot more in the second chapter relating to the book of Abraham about exactly this kind of thing, which means Joseph Smith taking ideas that he was familiar with and that were available to him in his society and suddenly incorporating those ideas into the book of Abraham. That's what Terrell Givens means by his prophetic imagination. That's what Terrell Givens means by his revelatory imagination. And that is why I consider Terrell Givens to be the winner of the gold medal in the Olympics of subversion. And that is why I have titled tonight's episode, The Amazingly Subversive Terrell Givens. Well, I hope you've enjoyed tonight's podcast. If you have not yet donated to Radio Free Mormon, I encourage you to do that Now, Please just go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and make a contribution, hopefully a recurring contribution, a monthly contribution, $10, $20, $25 a month, whatever you can afford. I appreciate your listenership here at Radio Free Mormon and in doing my best to continue broadcasting the truth behind enemy lines. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.